just before we get going on this show for this week, um, you probably know at this point that uh, the show is powered by listener support from listeners like yourself and as well as some advertising. And um, it's been really great. I mean, you know, we're so impressed and so grateful for the listeners that have supported the show. And it makes all the difference. We need the support to make the whole thing work, uh, to allow us to be able to produce the show and put as much work as we do into it. And I'm not sure if you remember, but a while back I was talking about um, some problems that we're having with our main computer. And we've been sort of vacillating with replacing this for a long time, but it's a Mac and it's quite expensive. And we've had all kinds of problems with it. I mean, the trackpad doesn't work. The the power cord heats up and almost melts it. And there's plugs that don't work on it. And then most recently, our FireWire connection to our interface, which we're renting because our interface died a while ago, uh, also failed. So the thing has really been falling apart. So just to the point where we think we're backed into a corner here, there's a fella named Scott McQueen who comes out and sends me a message and says he's got a MacBook that's um, similar to the one we've got. It's a couple of years newer and it works fine and he'd like to donate it to the show, which he did. And he sent it to us. And while it's because of Scott McQueen that you're hearing my voice now, because I don't think the other computer was going to last even another week. So the timing was beautiful. I just want to say, Scott, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. And it's made a huge difference. If you, if you like our show, you want to support, just drop by the website, click on the support button. It's www.adventureriderradio.com. We've got a bunch of different ways to support, and we send back stickers and different things, incentives. And we've also got Patreon that we signed up for at the suggestion of some listeners. And as I mentioned one other time before about, um, you know, think about how much you're spending for a cup of coffee and the value you get out of it. And then if you feel you're getting value from the show, I mean, we'd love it if you'd show your support by dropping by the website. Otherwise, drop by the website and look at all the show notes. And we We've got a lot of show notes in there for all the different episodes that we've done. So if you're interested in seeing what we're talking about or looking at some charts or different things like that, um, Elizabeth puts a fair bit of work into those show notes. So drop by and check it out, www.adventureriderradio.com. You know, I think as humans, we often make excuses of why we don't chase our goals. And I think for many of us, it seems that on a daily basis, life is just too difficult for us to bother or have the time to do it. But today's story, today's story may help you put your life challenges in perspective. As well, it may fuel your imagination for a life lived well. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Shall we begin? Shall we begin? Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. Maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you're going to want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and will inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Made in the USA and comes with a lifetime warranty. And Motorcycle Consumer News Magazine just chose the Cycle Pump as the MCM top pick in their recent compressor comparison. www.cyclepump.com Hi. 
I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed Marks. Glenn Hickstead. Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Michelle Lambert. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schwartz. Brett Tatt. Zoe Cano. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Rowe. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Carol DeVell. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using their unique strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. And that has gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com The MotoBreeze chain oiler is powered by wind pressure that automatically adjusts for speed. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers oil to your chain with a felt pad that's mounted on your swing arm, which eliminates the problems of exposed nozzles near your sprockets. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets and forget about the messy spray oil. www.motobreeze.com. That's two I's in there. www.motobreeze.com. I think most of us would agree that goal setting is is a really important part of life. But how many times do you get caught up in life and just sort of forget what you want or forget what your goals are? Or have you thought, I can't do it. I just can't do it. It's just too ambitious of a goal. And then you sort of pack it in. Coach Ramey Stroud spent his life chasing his goals. He started out as a young kid with a desire to become a top motorcycle racer. And then, as with all of us, you know, life gets in the way and your plans change. But Ramey would just readjust his goals to suit whatever he was after at the time. And and he really had a passion for motorcycles and for racing and, and found a way to stay at it. And life was humming along just fine. But then, in a moment, everything changed. Ramey had a crash that left him paralyzed from the chest down. And what he decided to do with this new reality would take him down a road that few could imagine. Basically, I, we were uh, uh, indoor motocross, uh, and indoors is always a very, very tight track. And in this case, uh, it was tight track with some pretty extreme jumps, uh, a lot of whoops, a lot of tight turns. And uh, I'd done real well in the first moto, and uh, we were in the second uh, later in the evening. And uh, I had gotten... Uh, not my best start, but I was worked my way back up to second, and I wanted to pass this guy and see if we can pull off the same kind of result like I had in the first moto. And there was, well, uh, a couple of jumps that uh, uh, I, I have to explain. In other words, sometimes you're jumping from one jump to another. It's a double. And in this case, there was something called a double-double. And I decided I wanted to go from the first to the fourth and try to pass this guy in the air. And in the process, uh, I had to hit it pretty hard and go pretty high. And up near the ceiling, there was a cable. And uh, unfortunately, we hit this cable. I hit the cable and uh, came crashing down to the track. And the bike went off to the concrete and ended up uh, uh, breaking my helmet in four pieces and and uh, breaking my back as well and uh, punctured a lung and uh, 
there was a long list of injuries, but turns out there were some firefighter buddies in the audience uh, that were able to come out and get me stabilized. And uh, by the time the ambulance got there and got me intubated, uh, they were able to keep me breathing. And next thing I know, because uh, I'm unconscious during all this, uh, I'm in the back of a pickup truck going down a dirt road in Mexico. This was a race that was in Mexico? No, this was in my head. After the crash, I'm in the hospital and I'm in and out of consciousness for a few days. And I could remember the doctors coming in and saying, Ramey, where are you? And I'd say, I'm in Mexico. And they'd say, no, no, you're in Oregon. And anyway, in and out. And what we were doing was looking for a priest to bless my bike. Now, I'm, I'm not a real religious guy, but this was a really strange kind of a thing. But eventually, um, this guy who was driving this beat-up old truck found uh, this adobe church, came around the corner, and the next thing I know, uh, I see these big double doors, and this priest comes out and gives me the, the sign, and I wake up in the hospital. And unfortunately, when I woke up, uh, I was kind of in a different body uh, because I looked down and I couldn't feel anything I saw. I was basically paralyzed from the chest down. I could still move my arms. I could still breathe. Uh, I couldn't talk very well because I'd been intubated so long. But I mean, it was for me, it was another kind of out of body experience. How old were you? Oh, let's see. I was 56. Some, somewhere in my mid-50s, I'd have to do the math. You're 56 and you're doing Supercross. Why not? If you're physically fit and you're doing the training and you got the bike, why not? What did the doctors tell you at this point? Uh, they told me to remodel a house and buy a, a van with a ramp. And I said, whoa, 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 let's back up here a little bit. And they said, you know, you just the chances of you ever walking again are nil. And I said, okay, what do you base that on? And they said, well, the statistics go, and I said, just interrupted them right there. And I said, so you're basing this on the average person uh, with the average rehab and the average insurance coverages and this is your conclusion. And they said, yeah. And I said, okay, you're not going to get angry if I prove you wrong. And they said, more power to you. Bring it on. And that was the start. Let's talk a little bit about your background. You grew up in Nevada. Yes, sir. And what got you into motorcycling? Well, I, I grew up around horses and, uh, you know, I, I love the desert and I spent a lot of time in the desert on the horses. And and I I started uh, doing what my family had done, learning to rodeo. So I rode uh, saddle broncs and uh, bareback horses and Bramer bulls. And uh, I kind of figured when I got out of high school, I was going to become a rodeo cowboy and make my fortune. But um, things changed one afternoon. I had been uh, working on construction sites part-time doing cleanup to earn some extra money. And the guy I was working for would come to work with a pickup truck. And in the back, there was this motorcycle. 
And I kept looking at the bike and he saw me looking at the bike and he, one day he came over and he said, you want to hear it? And I said, sure. So I'm standing at the back of the truck. He jumps in there, starts it up. And it was a Montessa Diablo scrambler. I'll never forget 250 cc's and then didn't have an expansion chamber. It had this thing called a bluey pipe, which was like a cone muffler. And when he started that up, that thing started beating me in the chest. And I knew in that second that my life changed and rodeo went away and motorcycles took its place. And I've been with bikes ever since. Probably much to the dismay of your family. Oh, they thought I was (laughs) blinking crazy. And by the time I finally graduated from high school and I finally left, um, I left on a 400cc Norton motorcycle with a canvas bag strapped to the back and about a hundred bucks in my pocket. And I was heading to Southern California, the, what I thought was the racing capital of the world, uh, AMA district 37. I was going to figure out how to get a competition license and I was going to make my fortune in a different way. How do you go from a 400cc Norton to racing? Like, was it a natural progression? You just got motorcycle magazines or what got you thinking about racing in particular? Well, when I I got to Southern California, I knew that there were certain things that uh, folks were doing uh, in the professional realm. And the flat track was one, TT was one, road racing was one. And so I I ended up at uh, Ascot Park in um, Southern California. And I started asking around, and there was this guy that I met named Ken Maley. And he was famous for making these things called hot shoes, which are metal shoes that you put over your boot for flat tracking. And, you, you know, you, you always put your left foot down when you're doing the left-hand turns. And so Ken kind of took me under his belt, and he introduced me to a, a fellow who owned a company called Motorcycle Setups. And he gave me a part-time job uh, uh, starting to put motorcycles together and there was a cot in the back of the warehouse and I ended up living in the warehouse for a while and pretty soon uh, Ken introduced me to some other folks and uh, I ended up getting uh, a ride for a, a small motorcycle shop called TNO Yamaha and um, that was the start. I just started going to all the little tracks and doing my time and taking my falls and losing my races and working my way up. When you say get a ride, what you're saying is you got sponsored. That's a racer term. Well, yeah, I, it wasn't a hundred percent sponsorship and there certainly was no money involved. I had to do a lot of work for the shop, uh, you know, in the background, but, uh, it was all part of the learning experience. And I guess it's what you call paying your dues. Uh, but it, for me, it was great because all these little jobs and all these little tasks gave me a foundation that uh, helped me to be able to see a future. Um, Because quite frankly, in the beginning, there's no picture. There's no visualization. There's this dream, but uh, there's not enough meat to it to make it a goal yet. And so these folks helped me turn my dream into a goal and then helped me be able to develop a program to meet my goal. So did you end up becoming a professional racer and making money from it and sort of making it your living? Well, that's a great question. Uh, first of all, in, in professional motorcycle racing, very few people make a living off of it. You know, I mean, maybe the top five to 10%. So what my idea was is uh, I'll just work my way up, but I'll keep my part-time job. 
so with with in AMA racing back then, uh, there were three classes. There was a novice, an amateur, and a pro. And novice was limited at 250 cc's. So that's where everybody starts out. And then you make enough points, you win enough races, or you place highly, and then they bump you up to amateur. Well, at that point, then you go up into basically unlimited cc's. And for me, I had to find a new ride, a new sponsor. So uh, at that time, I went from TNO Yamaha to uh, San Pedro, California, which is also in Southern California, uh, to Century Motorcycles. And there was a, a gentleman there by the name of Wild Bill Cottom, <laughs> who's a pretty famous guy, who took pity on me. And he took me in and gave me a part-time job and, and a partial sponsorship. And the next thing I know, I'm racing amateur. And it worked out pretty well. And ultimately, I bumped up into expert and started racing with the big boys. And it was at that point I realized how slow I was. Uh, you know, since then, I've done a lot of racing and, and I'm, I'm going to go away from what I just said and come back to it. You can be the top racer in your local club and just be dynamite locally. But then you head off to a national event and you find yourself in the middle of the pack. The jump from local or amateur up to the top pros is a big jump. And it would have taken me years and years to ultimately become competitive and to be able to make a living at it. Well, about that time in my life, now I'm going back to where I was with Century, I met a girl. And we fell in love. And the next thing I know, I have a family to support. And so I ended up uh, uh, still with my part-time job and still with my racing, but not making enough money to feed my family and give them a good lifestyle. So ultimately, I ended up in a different profession that allowed me to keep racing. I became a firefighter. So you were working as a firefighter and you're, you continued to race? Yeah. Uh, the reason I chose uh, firefighting is we worked something called platoon duty, 24-hour shifts, which meant I only worked 11 days a month, but I was working full time. And that left plenty of time to do bike prep and to train and to go out and race. So it was, it was absolutely perfect. I had a full-time job and I had my racing career. So you're sort of continuing on, like, I guess, a semi-professional racing. And, and how did you do? Did you manage to work your way up or did you stay at the firefighting? No, I actually did real well and I was able to diversify. Um, and as I was doing all this, uh, the nature of racing changed. In the old days, we, we used to do something called TT, which was left and right hand turns uh, with at least one jump. That was that was dirt racing. And we did that in places called, uh, like, Lake Elsinore, uh, which is famous from On Any Sunday, um, Paris, uh, Southgate Speedway, Ascot Park, and so on. But ultimately, this guy named Torsten Hallman came to the United States, and he absolutely kicked our butts doing everything and changed the nature of racing in America. Uh, TT became motocross. And motocross changed the way we rode. It changed our bike setups. It changed everything. So uh, I really love that kind of racing. 
because it, it went on for hours. And I, when you get on the bike and you get set up, you don't want to do just a short moto. You want to get out there and keep working. At least I do and enjoy it. And, um, so I tend to lean towards the longer events like desert racing and motocross and not the heat race kinds of things. Now, the difference between motocross and supercross is basically that you're inside with supercross. Well, supercross is normally a very limited space, so they make the turns a lot tighter and the jumps higher. And, and it's to develop a spectator sport more, I guess, just so you can pack a bunch of people in and see the event rather than having everyone spread out and, and probably being a, um, a more attractive venue to, to get people to. Well, absolutely. And um, also to be able to film it more easily. So is that how you ended up in Supercross then? Was it just the, the, the whole industry sort of um, moving along from motocross to Supercross? Well, not all indoor events are Supercross. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of regional events that are like Supercross, but Supercross is a branded name. Uh, so um, basically, I was in a Supercross event when I crashed or a, a Supercross-like event. But I wasn't there really in a series. I was there cross-training for something called ISDE, International Six-Day Enduro. And did you go to the ISDE before this as well? Yeah, I I like the longer events. So I was training for ISDE and had done a lot of things. But up here in the Northwest during the winter months, uh, it's really tough to get out and ride because everything's so muddy or uh, snowed in. So uh, if you want to keep riding, you either get in the truck and head south or you go indoors. And so I wanted to go uh, indoors and I was there to stay fit and to keep sharp. Uh, So quite frankly, I was pushing hard in the race that I crashed in, but it was more about my, my personal approach to racing and not really that I needed to win extra points. You said in this crash or, or coming up to this crash, you were trying to jump the four jumps basically in one go. Is that something that's done in a race like that? Well, it's called a quad and, uh, yeah, it, it, it's done, but not very often. Right. So it's got a name, obviously people are, are doing it there. What was the deal with the, I mean, it really doesn't have much to do with the story, I guess. What's the deal with the cable in a, in a, a setting like this? Well, you'd have to ask the promoter, but um, basically uh, folks didn't think anybody was going to go there. And so, uh, you know, it was just one of those things that uh, somebody like me pushed it and uh, I paid the price and that's okay. That's part of the uh, risk that you take when you race. You were about 56 at this point. Now you're in the hospital you're told that you're, you really don't have very little chance of, of walking again. What happens next? Like when, the, the day that they're sort of wheeling you out, what is that like? Well, they didn't wheel me out for months. Um, I did a, a lot of uh, acute care for many weeks, and then they moved me to inpatient rehab. And the uh, thought process I think was a little more challenging. I know it was a lot more challenging than the physical part because you don't go from a life like mine to uh, needing help to wipe your butt. Uh, It was just such a dramatic change. 
I had to spend a lot of time to decide if life was still worth living. Um, literally, I have I've had and have the most wonderful life. Uh, I've been able to do so many wonderful things and meet so many great people that uh, I I almost feel like if I want more, I'm being selfish. Uh, I've had my share. And, uh, you know, these kinds of thoughts were going through my head. It's like, do I really want to go through all this rehab and deal with this body that I'm left with? Uh, or do I want to call it quits? Um, do I want to think about suicide? And so I started doing a lot of research and reading. And in Oregon, we have this thing called the Death with Dignity Act. And um, if you are... Uh, diagnosed with a terminal disease uh, with high levels of pain, uh, then you can get doctor-assisted suicide, although they don't call it suicide. They just call it uh, death with dignity. So I'm thinking about that as an option versus the rehabilitation versus what's the payoff if I do some rehabilitation. Now I'm stuck in a wheelchair the rest of my life. And it took a long time for me to, you know, kick all this around and say, you know, what's what's up? What's what am I going to do? And uh, I think that was the part that was more difficult than the rehabilitation, the physical part of it. Did, um, you, did you see a future for yourself at that point? I mean, I mean, the, obviously, this is what you're debating and anybody would be in that situation. But did you see yourself doing anything to do with what your life was about? up till that point in the future? Well, my life has always had a pretty good focus. In other words, I, I'm a future thinker. And the way I plan things is uh, I put them on the calendar in advance. And then I let that, that date be like a magnet that pulls me into the future. And so uh, if I enter a race, then I'll back into the program uh, to get ready for that race. Well, so now I'm in the hospital and I can't really use that process because I don't see much of a future. And I realized that that was the problem. Um, I, my thinking was screwed up because if, if you think about a race of any kind, uh, an athletic event, you have to work real hard to get ready for it and spend money and spend time and, and make choices. And then you show up at the starting line, um, there's no guarantee what's going to happen. All the work that you put in was just for the opportunity to begin. And so if I committed suicide or took the death with dignity option, uh, then I would never really know how the race turned out. I wouldn't know what I was capable of. I wouldn't know what rehabilitation could do. And, um, so to bail out now was to give up, and I don't do that. So what's your first goal? Stand up and pee like a man. Now, I don't know if, you, if we can say that on, on the program like this, but uh, I was just in the hospital. I was tired of looking up at everybody. And uh, at that time, I had a catheter uh, that I... I couldn't really pee in a normal way. And uh, so it, it took me a long time of um, 
bringing my wheelchair over to the parallel bars and using upper body strength just to be able to stand up. I mean, it took me weeks and weeks and months and months just over to the parallel bars. I'm going to stand up today. I'm going to stand up today. And then when I finally did stand up, I couldn't do the second part of my goal. And I was like, oh, crap, what am I going to do now? You mean pee. And then I re- – <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that part comes later. Uh, then I realized, well, wait a minute. In desert racing, we would wear external catheters. And then uh, instead of uh, peeing into a bag, we'd just run the tube down our pants leg and out by our boot. And I, I used to kid the, you know, the guys once in a while. I'd say, you guys just tuck in behind me and I'll settle the dust for you. And uh, don't worry about those yellow spots in your goggles. Just you keep coming. But the idea was that I had already learned how to pee while holding muscle tension because you're bouncing across the desert at 50, 60, 70 miles an hour, whatever. And you got to control the bike and you got to stay focused. And then you got to relax enough to be able to pee. So I went back to those racing skills and used them in the spinal cord injury and ultimately started practicing peeing. And I was able to no longer have to use a catheter and was able to ultimately meet my goal to stand up and pee like a man. When you're going over to those parallel bars and you're trying to stand up day after day, what keeps you going? I mean, I mean, people around you must be looking at you thinking that's really nice. It's a nice effort, but they've already told you that it's probably not going to happen. Oh, that's another good question. Remember, I, I told you I'm a future thinker. So if I'm, if I'm going to do something, um, I create sort of a, a picture of it in my mind. And the, in, in this sense, uh, I wasn't going over to parallel bars every day. I was going to a suspension bridge in Africa. And this is a real suspension bridge in Zulu Natal. And uh, there's a kind of a bed and breakfast kind of place by this uh, fellow who's uh, an ex-Israeli fighter pilot. And, and now he runs a hot air balloon service. And anyway, I was going to go see him and visit and take a balloon ride. But to get to him, I had to go across the suspension bridge. And so every day when I would go to the parallel bars, I was visualizing, I'm going to Africa, I'm going across that bridge, and I'm going to get in that damn balloon. And so that was kind of what was going on. So when when you're visualizing, and you're doing this, are, are you getting help from others? I mean, are other people there saying, you know, yeah, you can do it, we're sort of behind you? Or is this something that's all going on in your head? Well, like I said, I, I'm sort of a future thinker and I back into programs. So uh, I knew of this bridge across the, the river, the suspension bridge, and I knew that I wanted to get across it to get to this, uh, this beautiful little village and uh, retreat, and I wanted to take a balloon ride uh, and be able to see the savannah and the animals because – when you're floating across the top of the forest, they don't really look up much and the balloon's quiet and it's just an amazing experience. So every time I would roll over to the parallel bars, I would visualize that suspension bridge and what was beyond it. So it, it was like, I'm going to Africa. And it was the dues that I had to pay to get to Africa. Uh, 
I did the same thing with stairs. Only then it was Machu Picchu and climbing the altar to the gods, the stairway to the altar to the gods. So I had this picture in my mind, so I didn't care much what other people were saying. I had my plan, get out of my way. How long did it take you to actually get to the point where you're standing? About a year. That's a long time. Must not. <laughs> that's uh, that's clearly why you are where you are and doing what you're doing. But so let's go from beyond that because I mean this these are very um, this this is very early in it. When do you get to a point where you actually have mobility um, for for yourself where you don't need assistance to get around? Well, um, from standing up in the parallel bars, I went to two forearm crutches. You know, the ones you you see sometimes that they're pretty bulky. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I had to have uh, braces on my legs. And I kind of look like Forrest Gump with crutches. And it's really weird the way that rehabilitation works. At the time, you're the weakest. You have to carry around the most weight. And uh, so I'm trying to figure out how all this equipment works because the the knee joints in these these braces are uh, designed uh, well they're copied after spacesuit knee joints and so when you put pressure on the heel uh, they'll lock because they think you're in the stance phase and then as you come forward you put pressure on the toe then the knees will unlock and allow the knee to bend and come forward and then they do that in an alternating sense so uh it took a long time just to get the braces on. Actually, I, I shouldn't call them braces. They're, they're orthotics. But I just I still keep thinking of Forrest Gump. And anyway, so you're dealing with all this technology, so you still have to have help to get all this stuff on and get it off. Um, eventually, I was able to go to smaller and smaller orthotics, and then ultimately uh, only onto my right leg, uh, my left leg got stronger first, and then ultimately to uh, something called an AFO, uh, which is only an ankle foot orthosis. And when I got to that point, then I was pretty much self-sufficient. That took ooh, maybe almost three years. During this time, did you ever think about riding again? I was already riding by then. Uh, about the second year into this thing, I realized that um, uh, I wanted to get back on the bike. And I would roll my wheelchair out to the shop and, you know, my bikes would be there. and I'd, Nobody was around, so I would talk to the bikes. I'd say, it's okay, don't worry, I'm coming, I'll be back. And uh, eventually I, I realized that uh, I wasn't going to be able to get back on the big bikes uh, that I had to start all over again uh, with the little bikes and, and kind of work my way back up. So uh, one day I got out a, with with the help of a young fellow that worked for me. Uh, I got out a Yamaha 125 and I had braces on both legs. And, uh, anyway, he kind of held me up and I got the braces on the foot pegs. And so I'm kind of taking a lap around the ranch and it didn't work out too well. I ended up crashing, but I was able to 
at least feel for a few moments what it was like to be back on the bike. It was possible. And so that, that helped me create a new picture. And um, it's, that picture's still evolving. That crash, for some reason, I'm thinking, wasn't as devastating as what I would think it would be. No, I mean, I pretty much figured there was going to be a crash in there somewhere, but I had all my gear on. And I mean, I've trained for years how to crash. And the only thing was, was all this equipment going to get in the way. But, you know, when you think about it, uh, in racing, we used uh, knee braces and we got our motocross boots on and we got hip pads and all kinds of body armor. So I was pretty much used to being in a, in a capsule. And so, again, the motorcycle racing helped my rehab. Uh, it gave me this impression that I was used to. So what happens next? Well, I still want to get back on a bike. And I, at that point, I think, mm, I can do this. So I start rolling the wheelchair over to the bike in the shop. Um, and the bikes are, are on stands. And I started crawling up to see if I can get on a bike by myself. And it was pretty ugly. And I kept trying it from left and right. And, and uh, in the shop, we, we have a lot of static trainers, uh, which is a totally different story. But we do a lot of static training in front of mirrors. And so I'm, I'm watching myself. And I'm pretty disgusted. I keep going. And then ultimately, I'm able to work myself into a, on top of the bike. And then everything changed. I can close my eyes and I can feel clutch throttle and brake. Um, and I can kind of feel my butt in the seat. I can't quite feel my knees. And, but I'm on a bike. And now I can start creating a new kind of mental picture. And pretty soon I said, I'm going to finish my race. The night I crashed, I I had two laps left to go. And I said, I'm going to go back to that track and I'm going to finish those two laps because I've never quit a race in my life. I'm not going to start now. So I got a hold of Yamaha and I told him what I wanted to do. And there was silence. And they said, we'll call you back. And a few days later, they said, will you sign a release? I said, sure. And they said, okay, we'll bring you a bike. So then I called the promoter uh, that, you know, put on the race and built a track and all that stuff. And I said, uh, I, I want to go back to that same arena. And I know you've got a track already built. How about uh, letting me have access to the track during the day sometime? And uh, I want to finish my race. And he said, well, uh, can I call you back? And I said, sure. And he calls me back and he says, will you sign a release? <laughs> I said, sure, sure. He says, all right, then we're going to change the track around that we have to kind of match the track you were on the night you crashed. And I said, that would be great. So anyway, on the, uh, we picked a date. And I used that date in the future to start training to get back on a bike and go back to that track and finish my race. If you're having trouble, you, you had a lot of trouble getting yourself up onto the bike. 
And how do you how do you plan to race? I mean, you have to have use of your legs, I would think. I mean, how does the whole thing pan out in your head? I don't know. I love it. I have a picture. I have a picture of where I'm going. Now I got to figure out how to make it happen. That's what I'm saying. So again, I, you I, set the future and then you figure, okay, what's it going to take to get there? Exactly. You back into the planning program. You back into the development. You go find the resources. Uh, you do the work. And if the work's not working, then you change it until it does work. And so, uh, I mean, the very first thing I did was I went back to the track I crashed. Um, and there was nobody there. I got access. And I just went in and sat there. And the lights were off. And I, I had to get a hold of my emotions. And, I mean, that was a really big part of it. And then I went home and I started doing the, the body mechanics, the, the individual muscles. What do I got to do? And what can I do? And so on. Anyway, so I ultimately um, was able to get down to the point where I could use motocross boots instead of my lower leg braces. And I could use my knee braces instead of the, the braces that I was walking with. And I could dorsiflex, plantar flex my left foot enough to be able to shift gears. And I unfortunately would only have to be only capable of being able to use the front brake. Um, you know, this is a bike Yamaha's bringing, so I can't tweak it around a little bit. So uh, anyway, I, I realized that the hardest part of doing what I'm going to do is getting on the bike. So I think, all right, I'm going to make a, a compromise and I'm going to get some help getting on the bike, but I'll take care of the rest. And anyway, um, family and friends were there and the media and a bunch of other folks and, and there's cameras going and all that stuff. And I don't really see much of anything because my picture is that track. And they got the bike started for me and they got me up into the seat and they kind of gave me a push off and I went out into the parking lot and did a couple of laps and then came back into the arena and got out on the track and I'm tooling around and realizing front brake is a little bit tough in some of the loose surfaces. You can push the front end a little bit. So I had to kind of change my lines and ultimately I crashed on the first lap and Everybody goes ooh and ah, and I thought, no, 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 that's part of racing. They came out, they picked the bike up, they got it started again, they picked me up, got me back on the seat, and I learned my lesson and came around on the second lap, and I'm heading to the finish line jump, and uh, I had a problem I hadn't anticipated, and that's my goggles were fogging up, and it seems like I was a little tearful. And that moment my life changed. I was no longer a guy in rehab. I was just another guy trying to stay healthy. So emotionally, it was just a major, major event. And I'm really glad I did it. But your question was about motorcycles and what, what am I doing? I also realized at that moment, two wheels was done. That there was just was no way after how hard I'd worked that I was going to make it back to two wheels and be able to realistically be in traffic safely. 
and so I had to make another mental shift, which I, I can tell you about. And that was to go to three wheels, to go to sidecars. Before we talk about three wheels, let me ask you, how do you know when to quit? I mean, because you pushed all the limits of really, I mean, I'd say of a lot of people, you pushed those limits, you broke the barriers. But when you come to this, how do you know that that's it? Okay, that's not going to work. I'm going to have to do something else. Hmm. Well, I need to think about that for a minute. Uh, I, I pushed in a lot of different sports and a lot of different activities. And I, I can draw on those to answer your question. But I think the better answer comes from being a firefighter. Uh, ultimately, I, I worked my way up to apparatus operator. And um, uh, at that time, we called it auto fireman. And I used to drive a hook and ladder truck in downtown Los Angeles. And that's the one where you got a, a guy in the back steering the rear wheels. Mm. And so I'm in the front seat and to my right is the captain. And we rolled in on a lot of big fires and I'm, I'm looking out the same window he is and he's on the radio directing equipment and making decisions that are, that are truly life and death. And I, I'm really thinking about this a lot because I was trying to decide whether to take the captain's exam. Well, eventually I did take the captain's exam and I moved over to the right side of the seat and I had to make those life and death decisions. I see somebody hanging out a window of an apartment fire and do we try to go and save that person or can we save three people with the available resources three windows over? And I guess what I'm, I'm getting at is that sometimes life is decisions are, are really, really serious and important, but they all are based on information, on experience and not just on emotion. And so when you start working as an athlete uh, and you get to know yourself, you, you kind of get a sense of, you know, where your limits are. And uh, in this case, I pretty much knew that I had given it my best, that it wasn't perceived exertion. It was real world experience. But remember we talked about risk earlier? Mm -hmm. I realized that um, I could not ride a bike in traffic and stay at or below my risk tolerance level, not only for me and myself, but for the people around me. And so I made a decision that, okay, I, I finished my race. I've proven that I can get back on two wheels. I am a two-wheel rider, but now I choose to go to three wheels. I'm not forced to. I choose to. So how do you make the change to three wheels? Oh, first you put your finger in your throat and go, yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, well, well I mean, time. is it that dis you, distasteful for you really going to three wheels? What, I mean, cause you said you chose to. Well, okay. This is uh, back to perception and emotion. When, when I was younger, you know, I'd see a sidecar and I think, 
wow, this is for real. You know, I mean, I laughed at them. I looked down on them. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, most of the time I'd see somebody on a sidecar that'd be older and in some kind of funny outfit. And it was like, I just didn't get it. And then I started realizing, well, there's different kinds of sidecars and there's different kinds of people. And so I started doing my research. And this is before I made the decision to three wheels. And I found something called sidecar cross. And I started looking at these guys racing uh, sidecars. And I thought, holy crap, I know how hard those jumps are. And they're doing it on that outfit with two people. And uh, I realized that, no, I've got the wrong mental picture. I got to change my picture and change my attitude and then, you know, make it work. And so once I did the mental shift and I changed my picture, then it was a totally acceptable decision. That, uh, and I didn't feel bad leaving two wheels behind with one exception. Which was? I knew you were going to (laughs) ask. Well, don't go anywhere. We're going to be back in just a minute to find out more. And there's a lot more coming up in this story. But first, I want to thank a couple of sponsors that helped make this episode possible for you. Now, you know that standing on your foot pegs is the key to riding in rough stuff. And, you know, when you're standing, it's your feet that are in control, mostly anyway. Well, if you have good foot pegs, that is. Because it's not just a wider peg that makes an aftermarket peg great. It's the design the manufacturing process, and ultimately it's the company that stands behind it. IMS Products has earned a reputation by building race quality parts, and they now have a complete line of foot pegs for your bike. IMS pegs are designed for adventure riding. Specifically, it's not just somebody designed a peg and put some sharp teeth on it and said, there you go, it's an adventure peg. This is designed for adventure riding. Everything from their their watershed design that encourages mud and crap to drop away from the peg to the shape of the teeth to make sure that you maintain your foot contact on the peg. And, And really importantly, the width of the peg, where that width has been added, it all makes a difference. It makes the difference. I've been riding on IMS pegs now for quite a while. And if I were to get a new bike today, tomorrow, one of the first mods I would do was go get a set of pegs from IMS and put them on. I'm that impressed with them. IMS pegs are made in the USA. They're guaranteed for life. And if you fracture them, they're going to replace them. It's that simple. Drop by their website, have a look at their lineup of of adventure motorcycle pegs at www.imsproducts.com and make sure, shoot them a note, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio so that they know it works for them because they're one of the ones that are, are helping bring this episode to you. And the other is PSSOR, Puget Sound Safety Off-Road. Now, you probably heard the episodes that we do with Brett Tax. Brett Tax is one of the owners of PSSOR. And you can get a lot of knowledge from just listening to, to Brett talk on here with me about riding and technique and our skills. Imagine what you're going to get if you take one of their courses. Now, they do a, a couple of different courses, well, a number of different courses, really. But really importantly, for adventure motorcycling, they've got some a base camp style courses where you go and you learn uh, at one location and then they've got the other style which is their expedition style where you're actually going on a trip and learning on a trip which is really cool a great way to get out for a ride with people who can teach you along the way and you know it's amazing what having an instructor somebody who's trained to look for this sort of thing there with you that can spot something you're doing that you may not even realize that would help 
improve your riding skills. So well worth your money to get out there and learn to be a better rider. Drop by their website, www.pssor. And anytime you're dealing with them, again, make sure you mention Adventure Rider Radio so that they know it's working for them. didn't feel bad leaving two wheels behind with one exception which was i knew you were going to ask when when you're in in the twisties and you're curving left and right when you're rolling the bike it's an amazing feeling i mean i i had a pilot's license for many years and and flew uh, open cockpit planes, and I could, I could roll the bike, you know, uh, roll the airplane either way. Uh, you know, being on the bike was very similar to flying the airplane, but better. I, I just, I was connected to the ground, and I could go left and right. It was just amazing, and that's the part that I lost. And it was a price um, that I, I had to pay in order to get back on a bike and get the wind back in my face. And so, it, again, it was a no-brainer. You know, that part of my life is done, and now I'm moving on to the next phase, whatever that is. Was it was the Spider motorcycle available then? Uh, yeah, I looked at... Um, uh, three wheelers uh, with two in front, one behind. Mm-hmm. I, I looked at trikes. Uh, I mean, I even used a three wheel bicycle for training. I got a, uh, it's called a tadpole, two in front, one in back with knobbies. It's uh, kind of a motocross bicycle. And I used it here on the ranch on the motocross course to help train my legs. Um, but I don't know. Um, I don't want to get too deep into the physics, but uh, a motorcycle has a tip-over line. Um, if you draw a line between the front contact patch and the back contact patch, you know that that line's called its tip-over line. If you add a third wheel, let's say it's a sidecar to the right or to the left, and you're in the UK, then now the sidecar has three tip-over lines. You draw the rear wheel to the sidecar; that's a tip-over line front wheel to the sidecar and the sidecar will tip over in three different ways uh, depending on on how it's being weighted and how it's being driven well a a trike has a tip over lines same way it's it's like a triangle and uh, with two wheels in front it has tip over lines so when you start thinking about how hard you can push these things and you know what's the difference between turns and so on it just it felt good to me to go with a traditional sidecar outfit, and uh, with us here in the U- in the United States, uh, it means that it's on the right. So I made a, a decision based on physics, uh, as well as uh, just you know based on what I thought it looked like. The sidecar would be fairly straightforward, you, except that you have to learn to ride a different style because it's cornering flat. Yeah, uh, I think I teach sidecar classes now, and um, I, I try right up front to make a distinction between riding a bike uh, 
and driving a sidecar. And, and this is a really important distinction because on a bike, at slow speed, it's direct steering. But ultimately, when you speed up, uh, you end up having to go with something called counter steering. Uh, that never happens on a sidecar. Uh, it's always direct steering. Well, wait a minute. I got to drop a footnote here. If you're flying the sidecar, if you pick the sidecar wheel up, then you're back to two wheels, and then you have direct and counter steering. But um, most of the time, if, if all three sidecar wheels are on the ground, there's no counter steering. So it's just like driving a car. It's flat. And where do you go from here? You, you're now driving your sidecar around. What's next? What's the next goal? Well, um, I wanted to do things that I hadn't done before. I mean, I, I was busy working and racing and a lot of family changes, as you can imagine. Uh, and ultimately, I had at one time set a goal to be able to ride around the world. And I had done quite a bit of travel on two wheels, uh, but I hadn't com completed the circumnavigation of the world. So I said, okay, it's time. So I started training and preparing to finish my around the world trip only on three wheels. Hang on a second. Hang on. You, you've, you've had all this problem and now you're going to take a sidecar around the world? Like this is a huge goal. Let me just ask though, what is your mobility status at this point? Well, um, I finally worked my way down to one brace on the right side below my knee. And I finally worked to be able to walk with one cane on level ground. But on the sidecar, I always carry two so that if I got to do some climbing to get out of a some kind of a spot, uh, uh, either up or down, that I can do it. But uh, basically, I can walk with a cane in one hand and a, a bag in the other. And now you're doing the same thing again. You're saying, round the world trip with a sidecar, what do I need to do? Exactly. Where do I need to go? What's it going to take for visas or carnet? Uh, how am I going to get the bike here or there? Um uh, where am I going to sleep? You know, what am I going to eat? Uh, what am I going to wear? All the stuff that everybody else goes through. And, and, uh, but I got a benefit though. I got a sidecar. I can carry more stuff than other people. Or so I thought I ended up loading my sidecar box up with tools and parts for my bike because I realized that if I broke down somewhere, I had to pretty much fix it myself because I didn't have the mobility to go around shopping for parts or, you know, getting help. I need to be totally self-contained. And, and that was the approach I took in my sidecar box. There's, there's not a car. There's, there's a, a box that uh, I have, um, basically, a, a minimum 72 hour survival kit. You drop me anywhere on earth and from snow to desert and I'll survive for 72 hours. Um, pretty good selection of tools, a good selection of parts. And, uh, then, uh, on top of the box is the gear I use from day to day. How long did it take you to do the trip? Well, about two years. I, I'm still traveling a lot. As a matter of fact, uh, 
I kind of got addicted and now I've got uh, sidecars stashed in, in Europe and, and in South America. But um, that's a different story. But the, the thing was that I still had uh, obligations here, teaching classes and doing rallies and stuff. So um, like my friends, uh, Grant and Susan Johnson say, sometimes you take a vacation with, within the vacation. <laughs> so sometimes I would park the bike get on an airplane and come home and visit family for Christmas and, and uh, spend a little while. And then I go back and, and get the bike out and get it going and take off. So it, it w I wasn't on the road continuously, uh, but about two years. You mentioned a couple of times, and again, just there about teaching. Where does the teaching part come into this? Well, when, when I was back in Southern California uh, as a young racer, and I had made expert, I, I wasn't really making any money racing because I wasn't placing up in the money. Um, you know, I was trying like hell. Um, and so the part-time job in the motorcycle shop wasn't really um, giving me enough money to live on. So on the weekends, I, I had lots of people inviting me to come out to their rallies or their events. And, uh, you know, could I bring my toolbox? And I thought, okay, you just want a mechanic out there. And I said, okay, so I'd go out. And they'd pay me to do stuff on their bikes. But then I'd be watching them ride. And it was like, hey, you know, if you do this, it might work better for you. And they'd go out and try it. And they'd come back and say, thanks, that was cool. And, and pretty soon I realized that uh, I could do more for people teaching than fixing their bikes. Because I, I, I kind of had learned some things. And pretty soon they started, you know, giving me tips and uh, like cash money. And, uh, you know, pretty soon they started inviting me not to bring my toolbox, but to come out and help them learn to ride. And, uh, and so I started teaching and informally. And then I realized that, uh, you know, teaching was a big deal because not everybody can has the time or the willpower to learn by the school of hard knocks. So I really started working hard on becoming a good teacher and the fire department helped because ultimately when I made captain, they assigned me to become a training officer and sent me to a lot of schools uh, and teaching firefighters how to do dangerous things is very similar to teach motorcycle riders how to do dangerous things. But when you had your crash, you had to stop teaching, I'm sure at that point. And then how would you get back into it? Oh, that, that was tough because, you know, I, I can't, I couldn't envision somebody to want to learn motorcycle riding or racing from a coach that's in a wheelchair. It's like, huh, you couldn't even keep your own body in one piece. How can we trust you with ours? And, you know, that was the kind of the mental image I had. And, I just kept that to myself and I didn't teach and friends and former students would always come by the ranch and see how I was doing and spend the weekend or they'd say, Hey coach, we, we we're having this problem. What do you think? And got any ideas or how, how we can fix it. So I was, I was still helping people, but not in a formal sense, not teaching classes. And one night I had an extra beer and my tongue was a little loose. And I said, you know, I wish I could 
get back to teaching. I mean, I just, I really miss you guys. And they said, well, we miss you too. And uh, I said, but yeah, you know, wheelchair, crutches, canes. Um, how's that going to work? And they said, look, for years you've been teaching us to take it to the edge. Now you've been on the other side of the edge and you've seen it. Come back to our side and now you can you can give us even more information. You're even more experienced. And I said, well, I'm not sure it's true, but I like the story. <laughs> and anyway, I said, all right, I'll give it a shot. Well, at that time, I was certified by the American Motorcycle Safety Foundation to teach uh, off-road classes. And they came up with this new program that was even more intense uh, that included uh, you know, a lot of obstacles and hills and rocks and, and um, sand and gravel and water crossings and all that stuff. And I said, okay, here's a picture I can work with. If I can pass the certification test for this new Motorcycle Safety Foundation program, then I'm going to start teaching again. And uh, so I started working with sidecars off-road. And ultimately, at that time, I, would, I had bought a, a Russian Ural uh, gear up. I don't know if you've seen pictures of them, but mm -hmm. it's kind of World, World War II technology. Very cool-looking bikes. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was really amazed. Two-wheel drive. But, you know, when you blip the throttle, there's not a lot there. So you, you really got to drive with technique and poise and not rely on a lot of power. And the single plate dry clutch, you can smoke it in a heartbeat. So you got to be real careful with your left hand. Well, anyway, so I start working on this program to go take this instructor certification class. And uh, I sign up for it, I pay my fees. And I show up in Southern California for the, uh, it was a, a six-day program. And uh, everybody's unloading their bikes, and I unload the sidecar with me walking on a cane. And the instructors come out and they said, uh, 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 you can't take this class. This is for bikes. And I said, well, um, I didn't see that anywhere in, in your information. And they said, well, this is for bikes. And I said, well, as I understand it, the Motorcycle Safety Foundation is a 501c3 organization, which is one of our tax designations, which means that you're subject to the Americans with Disabilities Act. Yeah, can you tell I did my research? <laughs> yeah. And uh, you have to do something called make reasonable accommodations for disabled people. And uh, that sidecar is a reasonable accommodation. If I can drive that sidecar wherever you take a bike, and if I can do whatever all these other instructors do on a crutches, then you need to test me. And they said, uh, way right here. And they went in and they were on the phone for the longest time. And pretty soon they came back out and they said, uh, welcome to the class. And uh, I took this class on this old Russian Ural and, 
and uh, I got my certification and never looked back. I've been teaching all around the world ever since, uh, pro racers and amateur riders and adventure riders and anybody that is interested in two world wheels, then I'm interested in you. What's your life like now? Oh, it's good. Um, we've got a 50 acre training ranch that, uh, runs, uh, in the good season. Uh, the weather turns good around April, May. So we train pretty hard through about this time of year, October. Uh, we've got, uh, some pretty intense training here. Uh, that goes at everything from you never throwing a leg over a seat of a bike before to uh, extreme enduro. Um, so there's plenty of variety. I'm still doing rallies and things like that. Uh, uh, like Grant and Susan for Horizons Unlimited uh, are doing these off-road navigation events now called a hum. Uh, so we're doing classes before that to help folks get ready. Working with pro racers at uh, FIM rallies, uh, things like that. Uh, trying to stay fit. And uh, it kind of takes me back to what I said before about having motorcycles stashed all over the world. So if I take a teaching gig uh, like in the Dakar in South America, I'll go down and, and be with the Dakar. And then I've got my bike there. And I'll, like this year after Dakar, we traveled up through Argentina, uh, through the southern jungles of uh Brazil and then back down into Uruguay and ended up on a 150-year-old cattle ranch in the uh, uh, in Uruguay uh, that still didn't have electricity. We're kind of basically camping out in the same uh, bunkhouse that the cowboys or the vaqueros did for, you know, decades and eating food from a wood stove. So, I mean, it, life is good. You just got to go and get out there and make it happen. How old are you now? 70. And what's your next goal? Huh? Well, next, I mean, there's a list, but how about the next big goal? Okay. Uh, my entry fee is paid for the Alcan 5,000 rally in 2018. Wow. I, I did I did that rally the first time that they allowed motorcycles into it uh, back in 2002, and uh, did pretty well. Uh, ended up uh, on the podium, and and it was a fun rally. It it it's not a speed event. It's called a TSD rally, time speed distance. So it's it's an endurance event that requires brains and preparation. And so the bike that I used was sponsored by TourTech uh, uh, and uh, was a BMW 1150GS. Uh, and that was one of the bikes that was out in the shop that I used to talk to when I'd roll out there in my, my wheelchair. And ultimately, I, I went out to the shop and I said, uh, we need to have a talk. Um, you're going to get a third wheel. Are you okay with that? And uh, I assumed that the bike said yes, and then we put a sidecar on that bike. And that was the bike that I rode uh, through a lot of my around-the-world experience. And it's currently in Heidelberg, Germany. And that bike's being shipped back to the United States next month. Uh, and we're going to go through it this winter. 
to get ready for the Alcan in 2018. So the same bike, 17 years later, and the same rider, 17 years later, are going to go do the Alcan 5000 again. What's the distance on the Alcan 5000? Well, you'd have to talk to Jerry Hines, uh, who's the uh, event promoter, because uh, he's the one that lays out the course and so on. But uh, it's about or very close to, uh, I think, 5,000 kilometers, but it could be 5,000 miles. And just you, you never know. You just show up, and they give you the route sheets every day. And uh, I think this year we're going uh, all or in 2018 – it's scheduled to go to the Arctic Circle um, through the back country of Canada and the Yukon and I think Yellowknife, Whitehorse up in that region and ultimately to the Arctic Circle. Before I let you go, I really want to ask you about the goals thing. For the average person out there that um, maybe just sort of going through life, doing their thing, do you think that it's important that we all have these goals, that we all set goals like that that are they're sort of pushing, well, I shouldn't say sort of, because it's not the case for you, but are, are pushing ourselves to the limit. I mean, is, is that what makes your life good right now? Well, no. I, I think we all have to keep our lives in balance. Uh, and so my goals uh, are not my complete life. I mean, I have, uh, uh, you know, obligations and family and and all the other things that everybody else has to be responsible for. Uh, but I think we have to live for ourselves at some point. And, uh, you know, unless you're Mother Teresa, uh, you have to have some picture in your mind that reminds you that life is really worth living and that all the hard work you're doing is for some benefit to, to you. So for me, I think that... Uh, you know, this idea of dreaming is great, but a dream doesn't become a goal until it goes on the calendar. Coach, it was really great to talk to you, and we have to get you back again. Oh, it'd be my pleasure. I, I really enjoyed this, and I just want to wish you, the listeners, uh, you know, the very best, and hopefully you have some dreams that will come true. Well, that was Ramey Coach Stroud. And uh, if you want to find out more about Ramey and what he does, and I encourage you to do it, drop by his website, www.ridecoach.com. And of course, that link and some photographs from Ramey are in the show notes for this episode.
I just want to remind you that this episode was made possible for you today in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com, Green Chili Adventure Gear at www.greenchiliadv.com, and Moto Breeze Chain Oilers, www.motobreeze.com. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, the listener, of course. Thank you very much. If you like what you're hearing and you want to hear more, drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com. You can listen to all of our shows. You can also check out our other show that we do called ARR Raw. It's a once a month show. It's roundtable talks with a bunch of motorcycle travelers. And um, that's a separate subscription rather from this one. So make sure you drop by the website and look at that. You can also subscribe on iTunes. You can get on Stitcher and all those other places. Coach Ramey Stroud, have a look at what he does. Um, what a, an inspirational story. And, and I think these kind of stories are really good to help, you know, get your own life in perspective, isn't it? It makes you think. And uh, I enjoyed that very much. Anyway, it's time to get out there and ride your bikes. My name is Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. See you next week. Hi, this is David Huff. Um, I'm a motorcycle journalist of many years, and um, uh, I'm talking to you on Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 